passion for God and compassion for our neighbor. Reaching our region and beyond with the life-changing message of Jesus Christ. This is Crosswinds Church. And now, here's Pastor Jordan Gowing. Well, uh, thousands, uh, thousands of years ago, uh, at the beginning of the church, there were two missionaries. Um, many of us probably familiar with their names, Paul and Barnabas, two of the, the most uh, famous missionaries in the early church. And, and they went on a missionary journey together. They, they worked alongside one another as they started their missionary careers. Uh, and they, they returned from that, that time as uh, this missionary duo, so to speak. And uh, after some time of, of rest and prayer, they were ready to set back out on a, a journey together. And uh, they had this disagreement uh, that started between the two of them. Uh, apparently there had been this other member of their missionary team that on their first journey, uh, his name was, was Mark, and he uh, abandoned them halfway through their, uh, their missionary travels. Uh, Paul was pretty upset about this. Uh, he had been counting on Mark. He was depending upon Mark, and there's no other way of, of saying it. He, he was let down. Mark let him down. And so he didn't want to bring Mark on this next missionary journey, but Barnabas did. Barnabas wanted to give him another chance. Uh, Barnabas was actually his cousin, and so he probably knew Mark, knew Mark's heart a little better than Paul did. And what he wanted was for Mark to accompany them again. And they just couldn't come to an agreement on this issue. Paul continued to say, no, this is not happening. We can't bring Mark. He let us down, and we want to see some sort of growth out of him before we allow him on a journey again. Barnabas, on the other hand, said, no, we are going to bring him with us. We, we want to continue to disciple him, and he can be used in a mighty way for the kingdom of God. And, and these two men, we don't really know which one's right. In, in honesty, there, there's some good to both sides of this argument. But at the end of the day, they couldn't reconcile with one another, and this missionary partnership actually deteriorated. They went their own ways. Paul chose another person to go with him named Silas, and Barnabas and Mark went out on their own. And the text in in the Bible, as, as far as we know, there isn't a passage that tells us how they reconciled to one another, how they restored their friendship, their relationship, And indeed, what we see the rest of their lives is they're going their separate ways. This broken relationship might be something that you have experienced before. A friendship or a relationship with a family member or with a co-worker. One of these relationships that that means something to you and all of a sudden it just takes a nosedive. and, And sometimes we're just unclear about what went wrong about how things ended up the way that they did. And then there's some times where it's abundantly clear. It is very clear to us why these relationships take a turn for the worse. Maybe you did something wrong and you regret your decision. It keeps you up at night, but you can't take it back. Or maybe they've offended you. They've done something that that wrongs you, and you just can't restore that relationship. And all of these fractured relationships make us long for God to make all things right in the new heavens and the new earth. And oftentimes we're left just scratching our heads, wondering if they're a Christian and if I'm a Christian, how on earth can we not just get along? 
Maybe they're not a Christian, but you find yourself as a Christian. You're still wondering, I'm a Christian. How can I not just forgive them, let go, and trust them once more? This morning is all about that. Our passage is all about reconciliation. It's about pursuing reconciliation with those that we have broken and damaged relationships. Maybe this morning you are wondering, how can I be reconciled to someone that I have hurt? Someone that I have done something wrong to. I want to restore this relationship. How can I fix the thing that I've broken? Maybe you're on the other side and you've been greatly hurt by someone. You want to restore that relationship. You want it to be fixed. You want things to be back to the way they were. And you're asking, how can I ever trust them again? As I mentioned, Genesis 43 and 44 are all about that. They're all about the restoration of these relationships. Over the last uh, couple of weeks, we've been looking at Joseph and the relationship that he has with his brothers. We've specifically been focusing on these interactions that take place 20 years after the last time that they encounter one another. When Joseph's brothers almost kill him and instead decide to sell him into slavery, if there is any family that needs reconciliation, it is this family. Joseph has been greatly wronged by his brothers. His brothers have actually been greatly wronged by their father. And this is the family that God has promised to use to bless all of the nations of the earth. And we might be wondering, how on earth can that happen? How can God use this family if they can't even live at peace with one another? If you have a Bible, I invite you to open up to Genesis 43 and Genesis 44. I mentioned that these chapters are all about reconciliation, but specifically they're about reconciliation that brings glory to God. And if you've been wronged or if you have wronged someone, these words are for you. You see, God calls us to reconcile if possible. And our text this morning really gives us five key building blocks that serve as the foundation for reconciliation with those that we have hurt, those that have hurt us, and oftentimes those that we don't even know what went wrong in our relationship. So as we approach this text, let us pray one more time. Lord, again, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it is truth. And we ask that your spirit would be with us now, that you would give us wisdom. As we look at this passage, we try to dive into it. We ask that your spirit would show us how to reconcile with those that we have damaged relationships with. So in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Now, we, we typically go through small passages of Scripture here at Crosswinds, and today we're going to look essentially at two chapters. Um, this, is, this is a bold move, and uh, I, I just will be candid with you. Um, I was the one who chose, uh, between our senior pastor and I, I was the one who chose this text division, and he said this is the last time I get to choose our text division because of how big it is, and I, I think I agree with him. Uh, for how long this is. But as, as we look at this, we're not going to be able to, to read the entire passage. So let's just briefly go over this story. It's, it's one that we, we've probably heard before. It's the story of Joseph and his brothers. Joseph and his brothers uh, have uh, had a rocky relationship for a long 
period of time. And uh, it really starts, uh, or it comes to a climax, really, with his brother selling him into slavery 20 years before this because they were jealous of who he was. Fast forward to uh, the present day, so to speak, and uh, Joseph is now second in command of over all of Egypt. And his brothers are in desperate need of food. His brothers think that Joseph is dead, but they come to Egypt and they buy grain from surprise. It's Joseph. Joseph tells them that they're not allowed to return back to Egypt to buy grain unless they bring their younger brother, Benjamin, with them. They're, of course, reluctant to do so. Their father is reluctant to do so. And so it takes some time before they run out of all of their food. They have no other choice. And last week we saw that Jacob finally lets go of Benjamin to allow Benjamin to travel to Egypt with his brothers. So the brothers make their journey back to Egypt at the beginning of this passage. And as they return to Egypt, they are seen by Joseph. And Joseph actually invites them into his personal estate. He invites them into their house. And of course, they're filled with fear. They think that Joseph is actually going to kill them in private. And so they begin to worry. And the moment they have a chance, they talk to Joseph's steward, his, his butler, so to speak, and say, hey, listen, we know there's some confusion about what's happened in the past. We know there's some confusion about us not paying for the grain that we received last time we were here, and we have no idea what happened with it, so we brought it back, and we want to pay double for what we, uh, what we owe you. The steward uh, kind of scratches his head and said, hey, don't worry about it. Uh, we received your money. Uh, that was a gift from your God, and so don't worry about it. And, and now they're a little bit perplexed. So why, if they're not convicted of, of being thieves, why are they being stuck here in Joseph's personal estate. So Joseph comes home a little before lunch, uh, releases their brother Simeon to them, and he begins to ask them questions. He begins to ask questions about their father Jacob. He wants to make sure that Jacob's still okay, and then he sees his younger brother Benjamin, and he blesses Benjamin. Now remember, 20 years before this, Benjamin was the only one who didn't try to kill Joseph. Benjamin is the only one that Joseph can actually trust in his family. And so that's why he blesses him at this moment. They have a lunch together and the food is served. What's interesting here is that Benjamin is giving five times more food than the rest of his brothers. This lunchtime meal actually lasts a long time. It goes well into the night. They feast, they celebrate God's goodness to them that they're not, they're no longer facing the death penalty. At least that's what they think. The next morning, or excuse me, while the brothers are feasting, celebrating God's goodness, uh, Joseph calls his steward over and says, hey, buddy, uh, we we got a plan here. Uh, What I want you to do is to take the money that they they paid for their grain with, put it back in their sacks, and uh, what's more than that, I want you to take my golden cup, or silver cup, rather, and I want you to place it in the mouth of the sack of Benjamin, the youngest one, the one that wasn't here last time. It's apparent that Joseph has one more test that he wants his brothers to go through. So the next morning, the brothers depart. They're very high spirits because they feel like everything's gone well for them. They received the, the food. They weren't convicted as thieves. They got their brother back, and they're on their way home. But then they reach the city limits. And just like us, whenever we see the cherry lights behind us in the mirror... Uh, they, they panic, and the steward is right there. And the steward says, hey, hey guys, wh- what do you think you're doing? 
They're like, well, what are you talking about? He says, you, you take advantage of my master's goodness, his grace to you, and you stole his silver cup. And they say, what are you talking about? That, that's, that's impossible. And they're, they're so enraged, this righteous indignation over what has happened, this accusation that they actually are so confident in their innocence that they say, you know what? We're, we're going to prove our innocence by the harshness of the penalty that you should give to this person. If the cup is with us, then you should kill the person who has the cup and the rest of us will be your slaves forever. Now, you don't say that if you think that someone's actually guilty. They, they thought that they were innocent and, and the steward, he backs off of that and says, okay, well, I'll, I'll take your, uh, I'll take your uh, claim at its word, but instead of killing the person and enslaving the rest of you, we'll just enslave the one person. They say, okay, that, that's fine. And lo and behold, they find the silver cup in the mouth of Benjamin's sack. This is the worst fear that they could have had. And the brothers are absolutely ruined. They have no idea how to move forward. And so they return back to Joseph to plead with Joseph to release Benjamin, to give Benjamin back. And Joseph is completely unmoved. He's unconvinced over what has just happened. And so Judah steps forward. Remember, 20 years before this, Judah was the one who stepped forward to say, you know what, let's not kill Joseph. Let's make some money off of this. And Judah steps forward. And I wonder what what Joseph is thinking when he steps forward. And then Judah opens his mouth and he he explains the relationship, the special relationship between Benjamin and his father, Jacob. He says, "If, if Benjamin doesn't make it home, Dad's going to die. He's just going to be filled with grief. And so please let him return home. And then the climax of this chapter is the very end when Judah says, if you won't let him go freely, then take me as his substitute. I will serve his punishment. I will be your prisoner, your slave for the rest of my life if you let Benjamin go. And that's how the text ends. Now, I'm, I'm sure we all have heard the rest of the story. We, we know that there is a happy ending. But if we jump too fast to that ending, then I think we can miss the focus of these chapters. They miss the focus of what God is trying to teach us through Joseph's actions here. And, and that's really what reconciliation should look like. I mentioned that there are five building blocks that serve as the foundation to reconciliation. The first one is this. Reconciliation is not the same thing as forgiveness. Reconciliation is not the same thing as forgiveness. Take a look at the beginning of Genesis chapter 44 to see what Joseph is doing to his brothers here. It says this, then he commanded the steward of his house. This is Joseph. Fill the men's sack with food, as much as they can carry, and put each man's money in the mouth of his sack. And put my cup, the silver cup, in the mouth of the sack of the youngest, with his money for the grain. And he did as Joseph told him. As soon as the morning was light, the men were sent away with their donkeys. They had gone only a short distance from the city. Now Joseph said to his steward, up, follow after the men. And when you overtake them, say to them, why have you repaid evil with good? Is it not from this hand that my Lord drinks and by this that he practices divination? You have done evil in doing this. Now, when we read this, you can wonder what on earth is is Joseph doing here? Is he just trying to get revenge? 
After all that his brothers did to him, is he, he's just trying to get revenge, uh, find an excuse uh, as a way to, to just off them once and for all? Or maybe we can think that, that Joseph is just kind of sadistic. He, he likes playing mind games. He likes watching his, his brothers squirm as they are trying to figure out what on earth is going on in their lives. I don't think either of those things are true. Remember, Joseph has the authority to have his brothers killed on the spot. He has the authority to imprison them for the rest of their lives without cause. We've seen Joseph's character up to this point. Joseph is not a person who likes to play mind games as a form of revenge. What's more than that, we see that Joseph has already forgiven his brothers as we look forward into Genesis 45. Notice these words in, verse four, in chapter 45. Joseph speaking to his brothers. And now do not be distressed or angry with yourselves because you sold me here. For God sent me before you to preserve life. For the famine has been in the land these two years. And there are yet five years in which there will be neither plowing nor harvest. And God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant on the earth. And to keep alive for you many survivors. Joseph has had the time over the 20 years of being separated from his family, to realize that God is at work, to realize that God has a plan. And because he sees that, he has forgiven his brothers. He's forgiven them for what he has experienced because he knows that God has a bigger plan in store for this family. But just because he's forgiven them doesn't mean that he has reconciled with them. That's just the first step. Forgiveness is just the first step to reconciliation. You see, Joseph actually needs to know if his brothers can be trusted. One pastor, as he was preaching on this passage, uh, shared a very personal illustration from his own life. He grew up in a, an abusive family. He was abused along with his brothers and sisters uh, by his father until he was uh, mercifully rescued from this terrible situation. Uh, he later became a Christian and felt the call into ministry and uh, reconnected with his dad, shared the gospel with his father. And his, his father actually became a Christian uh, when he, he heard the gospel uh, from his son. And the question came up, well, have you forgiven your father for what he has done to you? And the man said, well, of course, I, I forgive my father for, for everything that he has done. Why, why wouldn't I forgive him? Because Christ has forgiven me. Christ has forgiven him. Of course, I, I forgive my father. So then the question came up, well, well, do you trust your father? You've forgiven your father. Do you trust your father? And that led to a lot of questions. Would I, would I trust my dad who uh, caused me all of this pain in my life? Would I trust him with my children? If my father said, you know what, I want uh, to watch the kids for a night, would he allow his father to do that? And he said no. Why? Because forgiveness is not the same thing as reconciliation. There is a trust that had been broken. And that trust needed to be restored. And he needed time for that trust to be restored. I think sometimes we can think of forgiveness and reconcilia reconciliation as the exact same thing. We can think that once we forgive someone or once they forgive us or once we forgive one another, the, rest, the re, uh, relationship can go back to the way it once was. That this perfect trust can be restored in the relationship. But that's simply not true. Forgiveness is not the same thing as reconciliation. It's just the first step 
in reconciliation. If we confuse these two, I think it's very detrimental for our spiritual growth. It's detrimental because we find ourselves in a place where we can't actually forgive someone because we think that we have to, in order to forgive them, we have to trust them again. We have to have our relationship completely restored to that person again. And it can cause us to not forgive someone, to hold on to this bitterness as opposed to forgiving them, and then possibly from there, working toward trust, working toward a restored relationship, working toward reconciliation. Reconciliation is not the same thing as forgiveness. This is something that Joseph realized, that forgiveness was the first step in reconciliation. He was someone who had been hurt, who had been wronged by his brothers. This is the first step for him. But for his brothers, the first step was something different. And that leads us to our second building block of reconciliation. And that is this. Reconciliation requires confession. Reconciliation requires confession. Take a look at verse 16 of chapter 44. And Judah said, what shall we say to my Lord? What shall we speak or how can we clear ourselves? God has found out the guilt of your servants. Behold, we are my Lord's servants, both we and he also, in whose hand the cup has been found. Right after this cup is found in Benjamin's sack, they return back to Joseph and Judah steps forward as the representative for the brothers and says, God has found our guilt. God has found out what we have done wrong question is, well, what, what did they do wrong? We know from this passage that they didn't steal the cup. They aren't guilty of that. God hasn't found out that guilt. So what have they done wrong? Their minds instantly go back to Genesis 37. Genesis 37, the chapter that tells us about what they had done to their brother. Genesis 37, that tells about the wickedness in their hearts. Genesis 37, that tells how they had sold him into slavery. They were innocent when it came to the cup, but they were guilty when it came to Joseph. And these words right here are a confession of their guilt to God. They said, God, we are guilty. You have found us out. We are condemned before you. This confession is crucial for reconciliation. But the question is, is that enough? Is confession to God enough for reconciliation? Now, certainly, confession to God is enough for forgiveness. We're called to confess our sins to God, and he will forgive us for them. But if we confess our sins to God, is that enough for reconciliation? I don't think it is. This passage seems to hint that we shouldn't just confess to God. We should also confess to the person that we have wronged. Indeed, for reconciliation to happen, we have to confess to the person that we have hurt, that we have this damaged relationship with, that we were wrong. And that's exactly what happens right here. Even though they do it unknowingly, Joseph hears that his brothers know, admit, confess that they are wrong for what they did to him all those years earlier. You know, he's saying, well, why do I have to confess to other people for reconciliation to occur? Because it is the foundation. It is the building blocks of trust. If trust needs to be rebuilt, then we need confession. If you have been hurt by someone, if someone treated you poorly, who broke a relationship with you, you need to hear from their mouth. 
if you ever have a chance of trusting them again, you need to hear from them that they know that they were wrong for what they did. If you have hurt someone, you need to give assurance to that person that you know that what you did was wrong. That is the foundation for trust. And confession is just the beginning of reconciliation for the brothers. Let's continue sticking with the brothers. Uh, A third building block that we see here for reconciliation is this. Reconciliation requires repentance and it requires transformation. Reconciliation requires repentance and transformation. Take a look at the end of chapter 44. Now, therefore, as soon as I came to your servant, my father, or excuse me, as I come to my servant, your father, I'm, I'm butchering that. I apologize. Now, therefore, as soon as I come to your servant, my father, and the boy is not with us, then as his life is bound up in the boy's life, as soon as he sees the boy is not with us, he will die. And your servants will bring down the gray hairs of your servant, our father, with sorrow to Sheol. For your servant became a pledge of safety for the boy to my father, saying, If I do not bring him back to you, then I shall bear the blame before my father all my life. Now, therefore, please let your servant remain instead of the boy as a servant for, to my Lord, and let the boy go back with his brothers. For how can I go back to my father if the boy is not with me? I fear to see the evil that would find my father. When you have time, whether it's today or later this week, I really encourage you to take the time to read Genesis 37 and then to read Genesis 44 right after that. Just read them right after one another. And notice that Joseph, as best as he is able, is trying to recreate the circumstances of Genesis 37. He's trying to create the exact same scenario, the situation where he was betrayed by his brothers, to see how they will respond in this new situation. To see they have confessed guilt, yes, but have they actually changed? Notice just two things that are these two parallels from Genesis 37 and Genesis 44. In Genesis chapter 37, it is clear that Joseph is favored by his father. It is clear also that, that Joseph seems to be favored by God because he receives these dreams of his exaltation over his brothers. Now, how does Joseph try to recreate that in Genesis 44? Remember, he gives Benjamin five times more food than any of the other brothers. And does he do that because Benjamin is scrawny? Benjamin needs a little bit more food? Well, of course not. He's given more food than he could possibly eat, but it is a sign of his, favor, uh, his favored status in that meal. It is a sign of almost divine favoritism toward Benjamin. Everyone notices when Benjamin receives five times more food than everyone else, including the brothers. And as they are watching that food get passed to Benjamin, I can guarantee you that Joseph was watching his brothers like a hawk to see how they would respond. To see if there was any sort of jealousy, any sort of resentment, any sort of uh, bitterness toward their brother as he received this favoritism, this thing that he did not deserve that they thought that they deserved as well. How would they respond to the favoritism that is shown to their younger brother? That's the first parallel. Second parallel is this. Joseph places his brothers in a situation where they have a chance to get rid of the favored brother and to go on with their lives. 
20 years before, they had gotten rid of the favored brother in Dothan. They had sold him into slavery for 20 pieces of silver. Now Joseph tries to recreate this same situation with, ironically, with silver. He uses a silver cup to get them into this exact same situation. But if the brothers decide that they are going to confess, if they are going to to stand up for their brother, they're not just going to lose out on 20 pieces of silver. There's a possibility they can lose their freedom. If they go back to Joseph and beg and plead for Joseph's freedom, or excuse me, for Benjamin's freedom, there's a chance that they will be thrown in prison just alongside of Benjamin. So how will the brothers respond? It is not just a little bit extra cash that is facing them, but it is their livelihood, their their very freedom that is at risk. How will they respond when their brother is in need? How will they respond to what is considered Genesis chapter 37, part 2? You see, Joseph's actions, they're really a vital reminder for us that repentance is more than just lip service. He has heard from his brothers that they confess their guilt. But he wants to see actual fruit of their change. He wants to see if they've actually changed. If they're placed in a similar situation where they are under pressure, how will they respond? And Judah's words, which we read at the beginning of this time, these words show that that his repentance is not just idle words. It's actually led to a heart change. It's actually led to a change in who he is, at least for Judah. Reconciliation, if it is to occur, requires, must have repentance, and it must have transformation. We have to know that those who have wronged us have actually changed if we are to trust them once more. Fourth building block is this. Reconciliation comes with a high cost. Reconciliation comes with a high cost. Cost. We can, of course, think of the high cost that is facing Judah. If reconciliation is to occur, he has to risk his own freedom. Before his father, he pledged his own life for the safety of his brother, for Benjamin's safety. And now he makes good on that pledge. He offers his life as a substitute. For him, reconciliation is costly. The way that it takes time, that it takes effort to show that we have actually changed, to show transformation in our lives, it comes with a high cost. But notice also the high cost that faces Joseph in this chapter. If Joseph is going to be reconciled with his brothers, it takes a high cost as well. Chapter 43, verse 30. Then Joseph hurried out, for his compassion grew warm for his brother, and he sought a place to weep. And he entered his chamber and wept there. This is the second time when Joseph has seen his brothers that he steps out and excuses himself to cry. The Bible very rarely gives us glimpses of personal emotions of what's going on on the inside of people, with the exception of the Psalms, of course. So anytime that we see something like this, it should catch our eyes and it should cause us to ask, why is this being mentioned? Why is it that Joseph has to excuse himself? It's because he was reliving every single thing that his brothers did to him. He was remembering vividly 
the nightmare of being thrown into the pit. The terrible words that they said to him. The way that they laughed and mocked him. The way that they talked about selling him into slavery. The way that they even considered killing him. It was a painful reminder. Reliving every single thing that happened that day 20 years earlier. You see, reconciliation comes with a great deal of pain. That's oftentimes why people refuse to reconcile. They don't want to live through the pain. The cost is too high to experience the the hurt and the hardship over and over again. The cost is too high to express the same sort of selflessness that Joseph shows in this passage where he says that he is willing to let go of the pain. He's willing to relive all of the hardship in order to restore himself to his brothers. Reconciliation comes with a high cost. And the reality is the, the higher cost is often paid by the one who has been hurt. The person who has been hurt more has to relive hardship. They have to walk through the pain. They have to die to self to let go of their anger, to let go of their position of, of, of righteousness, of saying, you know what, I, I have a right to feel mad at this person, to say that I was in the right and they are in the wrong. It takes, it takes high cost. It takes selflessness, yes, to confess, to repent, to show transformation, but it takes more to extend grace. It takes more selflessness to extend mercy to those who have hurt us. Reconciliation comes with a high cost. And the fifth building block that we see from this chapter is this. Reconciliation models the gospel. Reconciliation models the gospel. Notice Judah's words at the end of this chapter once again. For your servant became a pledge of safety for the boy to my father, saying, If I do not bring him back to you, then I shall bear the blame before my father all my life. Now, therefore, please let your servant remain instead of the boy as a servant to my Lord, and let the boy go back with his brothers. For how can I go back to my father if the boy is not with me? I fear to see the evil that would find my father. Because Judah is willing to bear the punishment of a crime that he did not commit, the punishment that his family deserved for what they had done is overlooked. Let me say that again. Because Judah is willing to be punished for a crime he did not commit, his family will be forgiven of a crime they did commit. Reconciliation models the gospel. Judah is a flawed man. The Bible makes that very clear. But his actions here point toward the actions of his future descendant, Jesus. It is in Jesus and Judah's greater son that we see true reconciliation accomplished between God and between man. We see a relationship that was broken, restored. And that is the foundation for our own reconciliation with one another. Indeed, that is the foundation for our reconciliation with each other. 
You see, when we seek to reconcile ourselves with others, we can show other people what the gospel looks like. We extend mercy. We extend grace. These are things that are part of the gospel. On the other side, when we are the ones who have wronged someone, we express confession, repentance, transformation. We show that something that has been broken by sin can be restored. We show hope. We show grace. Reconciliation models the gospel. See, here's the thing about about, uh, this reconciliation between Joseph and his brothers. It is not private. It is not private. This entire drama is actually playing out for the entirety of the Egyptian high court. We see later on in Genesis that Pharaoh has actually been following along with everything. He's following along, seeing what his servant, what has happened to Joseph and, and how his servant Joseph responds and sees this transformation of those who has, have wronged his servant Joseph. And when you seek reconciliation in your life, you have a chance to show, to put on display, to live out the gospel. People are watching. Probably not on the same scale as, as Joseph and his brothers, but people are watching. Could be your kids. Could be your friends, your other family members. Could be your coworkers. People are watching to see reconciliation. Why don't we seek it? Why don't we try to show the gospel? No matter how much it costs us. Indeed, the gospel, the, the gospel of reconciliation, the idea that we are to reconcile with one, another's, with one another, uh, it, it does cost us a lot. If you were to sum up this, uh, this passage in, in just one uh, sentence, I think it would be this. Reconciliation requires both repentance and selflessness. Both sides of the coin, it requires repentance and selflessness. If we ever hope to find ourselves in a position where we are reconciled with those that are estranged from us, it will take repentance. It will take us saying that we are sorry for what we have done and turning around from that and showing transformation that we are a changed person to rebuild trust. But in the same way, it will take selflessness. It will take selflessness to let go of hurts, to let go of pain, to let go of anger, to be willing to sacrifice ourselves for the relationship reconciliation requires repentance and it requires selflessness it requires swallowing your pride to admit that you are wrong and it calls for swallowing your pride to admit you are right reconciliation is all about dying to self you see we live in a messy broken world and our relationships are the same they are messy and they are broken and that is why reconciliation is necessary so as we close this morning just ask is is god nudging you to reconcile with someone is god nudging you is he pricking your conscience with with someone that keeps coming to mind of who you should reconcile with of who you should restore a relationship with of who you should model the gospel to and with to everyone that is around you. It could be a family member that you haven't spoken to for months or even years. We got Thanksgiving and and Christmas coming up. These can be horribly awkward times for family members that aren't reconciled to one another. Could you pursue this? Maybe it's a it's a coworker 
someone that you have wronged or that has wronged you, are you willing to step out in selflessness to restore that relationship? Now, indeed, reconciliation can't help, can't work if both parties aren't committed, aren't engaged, but are you willing to take the first step? Perhaps just as important as who is whether you are willing as well. Are you willing to take the steps to reconcile? Are you willing to do the tough and difficult work of putting the pain in the past? Are you willing to take the tough and difficult path of confession, of repentance, of transformation, of dying to self? Because all of them are necessary. Are you willing to pursue reconciliation? If you are, my challenge this morning is simply to just reach out. Reach out today. Whether that means you talk after church or you pick up the phone and call them. Whether that means you write an email, you write a note, you write a message on Facebook. Reach out today. You may have to swallow your pride. You may have to recognize that you are going to be opening up old wounds that have never fully healed. For many of us, it might mean that we have to have conversations that are extremely awkward because the party isn't even, the other party isn't even aware that the relationship is damaged. It is extremely humbling to call someone and say, I need to make things right with you and to have them respond on the phone. What are you talking about? Reconciliation comes with a high cost. It calls for selflessness. Don't run from the hard conversations. Instead, pursue reconciliation in the name of Jesus to model the gospel. If you think that there is no chance for reconciliation in your life, I just want to to draw attention to, to something that we started with this morning. We talked about Paul's relationship with Barnabas. How, how their relationship was broken because of this man named Mark. What's interesting is, as I mentioned, we don't ever really see a resolution to Paul and Barnabas' uh, feud, if you will. Now, we can assume that they reconcile with one another because Paul mentions Barnabas in a couple of his letters. But, but one of the things that, that is interesting about the Bible and gives us hope that reconciliation is possible is this small verse in 2 Timothy chapter 4. You see, without a doubt, as Paul is arguing with Barnabas, he's also arguing with Mark. His relationship was, with Mark was damaged because Mark let him down, and then Paul didn't trust him to go on a journey with him. And decades later, near the end of his life, Paul writes this to Timothy while he's in prison. He says this, Luke alone is with me. Get Mark and bring him with you, for he is very useful to me for ministry. Get Mark and bring him with you. At some point, they pursued reconciliation. At some point, Mark showed transformation. Paul showed transformation. And this beautiful partnership for the gospel developed. This beautiful picture of restoration of broken relationship. To the point where Paul, as he is sitting in prison, is intentional in singling out Mark because he values Mark that much. Don't think that any relationship is beyond repair. 
Don't think that anything is too far broken for God. Just imagine if we took the steps that Paul and Mark did to reconcile ourselves in an estranged relationship so that years from now, just like Paul, we could say, get Mark and bring him because I find him such a help in ministry, such a blessing to me. If we ignore God's nudging, it robs us and it robs others of a taste of God's work in our lives. But if we seek reconciliation, we can model the gospel because God reconciled himself to us. As we close, I just want you to stand. Uh, we're going to listen or we're going to hear these words from 2 Corinthians uh, chapter 5. 2 Corinthians 5 is a powerful passage that talks about the, the fact that we also have been given the ministry of reconciliation. So hear these words. From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Powerful words of what Christ has done for us, that he who knew no sin became sin, that we might become the righteousness of God. And every time that we swallow our pride, and we confess to someone else that we want to restore a broken relationship, we model that same gospel as ambassadors of Christ. Let's do that today. Let's pray. Lord, we, we know that reconciliation is hard work. There's a reason that so often reconciliation doesn't happen, and it's just because it's, it's uncomfortable. It's messy. It's painful. It's difficult. And yet at the same time, God, we... We look at stories like Genesis 43 and 44, and we see what powerful picture we can miss out on if we don't reconcile. You can just think of how different salvation's history would be if Joseph and his brothers did not reconcile with one another. If they didn't seek to restore their broken relationship. And God, I just, I just pray that, that we would be willing to seek that same sort of reconciliation with those that are broken and, and wronged. Either we are or, or because we've done something to someone else. Help us, God. Give us the strength to do so. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. This has been a presentation of Crosswinds Church. More of Pastor Jordan's sermons can be found online at crosswinds.tv. Thanks for being with us, and may God continue to enrich your life.